in Luke chapter 2, verse 8, the Bible says, And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. Ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. In this passage, in the book of Luke, immediately prior to us reading about these shepherds, we see the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And God was not going to let such a momentous occasion, the turning point of human history, go by unnoticed. After all, he told us in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, Behold, the Lord himself shall give you a sign that the birth of Christ would be a sign, and that we would know this sign because a virgin would conceive and bring forth a child and would call his name Emmanuel, which Matthew interpreted for us as God with us. And so when you read about the birth of Christ in the book of Matthew and in the book of Luke, there's a lot of things happening right around the time of the birth of Christ. First of all, we see in Luke chapter 2, verse 1, that Caesar Augustus issued a decree that all the world should be taxed. And everybody had to go back to his hometown, the, the city of his heritage, to be counted in the census and to pay his tax. And so you literally have colossal shifts of movement of people, travel, people migrating from one place to another. And so literally the whole world moved at the birth of Christ. Now, in Matthew chapter 2, we will read next week, you will see where wise men come from the east. They come looking for the Christ. They had seen the star, and they had come to worship him. And when they arrive in Jerusalem to make this announcement, the Bible tells us that when Herod heard those things, he was greatly troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And so, when you have Jesus being born, not only do you have people migrating back to the towns of their heritage and their and their family lineages, but you also have Jerusalem turned on its head. The people who had profited under the oppression of the population were now in a place where they felt that they were about to be held accountable. Mm -hmm. And so you have things happening. And yet in Luke chapter 2, we don't just leave it to the royals. We don't just leave it to the elites of the city of Jerusalem we see the birth of Christ announced to the shepherds. Nobody missed out on this news. The Bible tells us in verse 8, And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. It is fitting that the Gospel of Luke includes the account of these shepherds and that the angel announced the birth of the shepherds, the birth of Christ, to the shepherds. Shepherds were of the lowest social class in Israel at that time. 
in Jerusalem, people prayed for the coming of Messiah. In Herod's palace, people dreaded the coming of Messiah. But out in the fields, you had these shepherds. And these shepherds were going to be out there with their flocks, guarding their sheep, caring for their lambs, regardless of what happened. If Herod remained in power, they would still be out in those fields with those sheep. If Herod were overthrown, they would still be with the sheep. Fortunes are made in revolution, but fortunes in revolution are never made by shepherds. It's always somebody somewhere else. And so no matter what happened, these shepherds minded their flocks. But in verse 10 we learn that the birth of Christ is good news to all people. In verse 10 the Bible says, The angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. You see, if a, if a revolutionary comes and deposes the king, that's good for the revolutionary. It's good for his followers. may not be good for everybody. If King Herod remains in power, that's good for King Herod and his followers. may not be good for everybody. But the birth of Christ and the coming of Messiah, that's good for everybody. It's good news, glad tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. Why? Because the Messiah would redeem all people. The Lord is our good shepherd. Jesus said in John chapter 10 verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. As the shepherds forewent the comforts of indoor living to dwell among their flocks by night, so Jesus left the glories of heaven to live among us. As the shepherds lived their lives for their sheep, so Jesus lived his life for us. And as the shepherds put their lives on the line for their sheep, so Christ laid down his life for us. It's fitting that shepherds would be some of the first to know about the birth of Jesus. It's fitting that Jesus would tell us that he is the good shepherd. The Bible tells us in the book of Psalms that the Lord is our shepherd. Psalm 23 The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The Lord is our shepherd. We shall not want, we shall not be in want, we shall not do without, we shall not be left out in the cold, we shall not be abandoned, we shall not be found holding the bag. The Bible says he maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He carries me into places of safety. He carries me into places of plenty. He carries me into places that I need, warm, safe, comfortable. The Bible says in Psalm 23, 3, he restores my soul and leadeth me in paths of righteousness. 
You see, so many people struggle with what is God's will for my life. God's will for your life is simple. Just trust him and believe him and do things out of love for him. It is literally that simple. You don't have to worry about finding the path that God wants you to walk. He'll take you there. He leads me in paths of righteousness. You don't have to worry about how hard must I work or how righteous must I be to hear well done, good and faithful servant. He leads me in paths of righteousness. He will take you there. He's our shepherd. And though I walk in the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil no matter what is going on around me, no matter what is happening in the world, no matter how dark things seem to be. I will fear no evil, for the Lord is with me, because he's my shepherd. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thy rod and thy staff, y'all know what those rods and those staffs were for? It's for when that wolf came up there, and take care of him. It's for helping the sheep out of that difficult spot in the ditch that he got himself into. The Lord is my shepherd. And here you have these shepherds out in the fields keeping watch by their flock by night. And they are doing the very things that you see in Psalm 23. Making their flocks to lie down in green pastures, leading them beside the still waters, standing between them and the wolves, putting their lives on the line, helping the sheep out of the ditches when they fall in. Sheep fall into a lot of ditches. Helping them through all these things. You find the shepherds doing that. And the angels come. And they announce the birth of our chief shepherd. Announce the birth of our savior to the shepherds. The the savior. The deliverer. The one who would deliver us from hopelessness and darkness. Deliver us from sin and judgment. The one who gives us life. The one who preserves our life. No longer outcast, the shepherds would be brought into God's inner circle. Essentially, God showed up to the shepherds. The ones who were constantly cast aside and told to get out of the way and told you can't be here and this place is too good for you, you're not good enough to be here, are now being welcomed into God's inner circle. Because the angel said, God's only begotten son's been born. You, you can come see. Here's where he's at. If Jesus were born in a hospital, these shepherds would have been welcomed into the delivery room. Now think about that for a minute. The shepherds are now in God's circle, and they could have eternal hope. When the angels praised God, they said three things in verse 14. They said, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace goodwill toward men glory to God in the highest and on earth peace goodwill toward men glory to God peace toward men goodwill toward men I want to talk to you about glory to God they're praising God they're saying glory to God what does that mean what does glory to God mean what does it mean to glorify God what does it mean to declare glory to God There's a Greek word here, doxa, D-O-X-A, not dachshund. Dachshunds are completely opposite of doxa, and if you've ever had a dachshund, you know what I'm talking about. You may have a dachshund now, and you may love that dachshund, that's okay, but that's not doxa. Trust me on this. I had a dachshund. It ate my house. 
literally. No, doxa. It's the word from which we get the title of the hymn in our hymnal, doxology. It means to hold in the highest honor and the highest praise and the highest regard and the highest esteem. The Bible says, glory to God in the highest. <coughs> the highest means the highest heavens, the highest places. In the highest realms, in the highest heavens, we give glory, doxa, high honor and praise to God. The creme de la creme give praise and honor and glory to God. The highest angels, those who are in the highest places, give honor and praise and high esteem and, and glory to God. Why? Why give glory to God? Why praise his name and exalt his goodness? What, that kind of answered the question there. Well, that was a spoiler. But why? Why all this praise, honor, reverence, and high esteem for God? And I think this is something a lot of people have lost. Yeah. I think a lot of people are, are wondering why they should glorify God. Why... They should honor God. Why they should give God a, a 10% or anything like that. Why should I? We're going to talk about that. These angels mm -hmm. are praising their creator. Are praising God. Because they're seeing God do something amazing here. See the angels were with God in the beginning. They praised him as he created the earth. They praised him as he spoke everything into existence. They were there when he breathed life into man's nostrils. And they were there when man sinned against God. And now in the birth of Christ, God has redeemed his creation. You see, God is in the process in Luke chapter 2 of securing a huge victory over Satan. Satan rebelled against God in the beginning and sought to exalt himself above God. In Isaiah chapter 14, verses 13 through 15, the Bible said, For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. This is Satan talking in Isaiah chapter 14, then known as Lucifer. He's saying, I'm going to be like God. I'm going to ascend. I'm going to reach the top. I'm going to set my throne above God's. I'm going to show God just how awesome I can be without him and over him. And yet he would suffer a stinging defeat. He would be cast from heaven and down to the earth. Yes. And following Satan's unsuccessful rebellion, when that did not work out for him, when God stopped the rebellion and put him down and put him back down on the earth, the only thing that Satan could do is take revenge. Yes. And Satan's revenge is to destroy God's glory by destroying the very thing that demonstrates his glory, and that's his creation. He can destroy the trees and the earth and the waters and the mountains and the seas. But yet those are things that God just spoke into existence. And he's going to destroy the crowning point of God's creation. The one that carries his very life and image. Man. 
And so we see in Genesis chapter 3 that Satan tempts man with the very thing that Satan wanted. He said that in the day that you eat of that tree, God knows that you will be as gods, knowing good and evil. He tempted man with the idea of being able to get out from underneath God's authority. This created problems. I was talking with one of my patients this week. We were talking about how the creature is waiting for the redemption of the sons of men, particularly the zebra because he's tired of the lion chasing him. And what life must have been like in the garden after the fall of man when the wolves hunted their first ram? What that must have been like for the ram? But we know that God will have the final victory over Satan. And we know that that final victory would come through his Christ, through his only begotten son. God's promise to redeem the world from Satan's destruction was first voiced in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. When God said, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head. And now shalt bruise his heel. And here in Luke chapter 2, we have the birth of the seed of the woman. Mm-hmm. And the angels have watched this entire story play out. And here comes the victory. Now that the seed of the woman has been born, the promise has to be fulfilled. Because the only way Satan can stop Jesus is to kill him. But in killing him, Satan accomplishes the will of God through Jesus. And so the glory goes to God because he is faithful in his promise. He redeemed his creation and the victory is his. You see, you've got to understand just how powerful God is. Mm -hmm. God can take any adversity and work it right into his plan. God is the master conductor of this orchestra we call mankind. This orchestra we call creation. This orchestra which was designed to create the most beautiful sound. And then the trumpet player says, I don't like this song. And so the trumpet player says, I'm going to play my own song. Have you ever listened to an orchestra or a band where one band member went off on his own thing or missed a note or got off beat? Have you ever listened to that? It can be a disaster, can't it, J.J.? When I was in high school, the Jacksonville High School Marching Band had won sweepstakes 29 years in a row. And they announced this at every football game when they took the field for halftime. And when I was in high school, there would be my class that would do this. One of the marchers got off beat and... Of course, the person on the front, you follow the person in front of you, the guy on the front got turned the wrong way and was going off the wrong way and one of our lines detached from the rest of the formation. And our streak of 29 sweepstakes ended at 29. It's a disaster. When somebody in the band wants to play their own tune and doesn't want to be on beat with everybody else, doesn't want to play the tune that is supposed to create the beautiful sound, you have a train wreck. But God is the master conductor. 
And so when the trombone player and the trumpet player decide to do their own thing, God calls over the woodwinds, he directs the strings to do something, and he works it around to where that rebellious sound fits right into the overall orchestra that he is directing. Glory to God. Yes. Man sinning in the garden was supposed to throw his entire creation into chaos and to derail God's plan, but yet God came up with something more glorious. Amen. Glory to God. Yes. And so the angels are praising God here. They say, glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace. Peace. That sounds good. Peace. We sing the, the Christmas song. Peace on the earth, goodwill toward men. Peace on the earth. Y'all watch the news lately? I wouldn't exactly say we have peace on earth, do we? Oh, hush your noise, you men of strife, and hear the angels sing. They, they won't do that. They won't hush the noise of strife, will they? This peace, where the angel says, and on earth, peace, this is not peace among men. It can't be because that has not happened. At any given moment, somewhere in the world, man is at war with man. Even if no shots are being fired at this exact moment, there are two parties at war. And they may have agreed to cease fire for a few days, but they're only doing that so they can prepare to start firing again. Because to secure peace is to prepare for war. No, at any given moment in human history, somebody is at war with somebody. In our political discourse today, we see strife and we see conflict. We are no longer arguing for what will be better for the country as a whole. We argue what will be better for us. And what's better for us is that your side gets defeated. We, we, we actually have mindsets in, the, in political movements today that if the other side didn't exist, life would be better. So let's see if we can find a way to legislate them out of existence. Now some people translate verse 14. They say this means peace among men in whom God is pleased. Do we have peace among men in whom God is pleased? If so, what is this peace? And did Christ come merely to bring peace among men where we'll just get along with everybody? The peace on earth is peace between God and man. Because since the fall, man has been at odds with God. Man has been at war with God. Man has struggled. Man in his natural state does not want to surrender himself to God's authority. He does not want to accept that God's way is the best way. He does not want to accept what God is allowing to come into his life is actually for the good. The Bible says all things work together for good to those who love God who are thee called according to his purpose. Well, if everything that God brings into our life is good, then how is this thing that is bringing me displeasure good? I don't like this thing. I don't want, like what God is doing in my life. Therefore, I am not happy with God, and now I'm at odds with God. And we find ourselves at war with God. Mankind is at war with God. When they tell you that we have to update our doctrines, 
and our beliefs and even our scriptures to the 21st century way of thinking, and this is coming from people who are not Christians, and sometimes it's coming from people who do profess to be Christians, this is man at war with God. See, the thing about it is there's a lot of things that make man feel good that's not in God's will. There are a lot of things that I would like to do that are not in God's will. That I can either despise God for that and be at war with God or I can surrender to that. But the peace on earth that Jesus brings is the peace between God and man. That's the good tidings of great joy. Because man being at war with God, man loses that war each and every time. Instead of being subjects of God's wrath and being objects of God's anger, we can now be at peace with God and we can be friends with God. Romans chapter 5 verse 1 says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The death of Jesus Christ on the cross satisfied God's wrath for sin. Therefore, we have been reconciled to God. We have been traded from being his enemies to being his friends. And we are now at peace with God. And this peace with God comes through Jesus Christ. What he did on the cross, the ministry he gave to us, the teaching he gave to us, the love that he gave to us, and the access to that peace comes by belief and trust in him. God's desire has always been to be at peace with us and to dwell with us. That's why God walked with Adam in the garden. God walked with Adam in the garden. They talked and Adam named all the animals. God loves people. God loves us. God loves you. God's desire has always been to be at peace with us and to dwell with us. That's why he visited Abraham. God went and visited Abraham, sat down on Abraham's front porch, ate a pie that Sarah baked and promised Abraham a son. God has always wanted to be at peace with us and and to dwell among us. That's why God ordered the construction of the tabernacle and later the temple. And it's why in John chapter 1, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. God has always wanted to be at peace with us and to dwell among us. It's why Christ went to the cross to clear that sin barrier. The Bible tells us that the veil of the temple, which represented the separation between God and man as a result of sin, that when Jesus gave up the ghost and he said, It is finished, into thy hands I commend my spirit, that there is an earthquake and that veil inside the temple was ripped in two because the separation between God and man had ended because Jesus Christ went to the cross. And Christ is going to return to this earth to restore his creation to what it should be. And he will sit on his throne. And guess what? He's finally going to dwell among his people. The angels are praising God. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace toward men. Peace between God and man. Peace and goodwill toward men. And goodwill toward men. Not goodwill among men. We don't have that. Goodwill toward men. Goodwill from God toward men. And this is where the faith of many falls short. Because so many struggle to believe that God is good. 
but God is good. God is good, and he gives good things. We struggle to believe that sometimes because sometimes things come into our lives that are unpleasant, but God is good. He sees things better than we do. He knows ultimately what is for our good. And so we go through these dark tunnels, these valleys of the shadows of death, and we're wondering how on earth can this be good, but on the other side there is good. That, that dark tunnel will take you to a place that is good. That valley of the shadow of death, once you get to the other side of that, there is a good place there. That's where God is taking you. The sheep might wonder why the shepherd is taking us through these woods. But there's a green pasture on the other side, see. We don't see it yet, but God knows it's there. God knows what's good for us. He is good. He wants good for us. He has good will toward men. In Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11, the Lord says, I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you an expected end. God is telling the nation of Israel as they're being carried away into captivity, I'm not doing this to you because I want to see bad things happen to you. I'm not doing this to you because I am taking revenge and working out my anger on you. I am doing this because I know what the end result of this process is going to be. And it's going to be good. Coach Long at Jacksonville High School hated us. I'm kidding. He didn't. But he put us through these exercises, I'm telling you, would make you, I mean, he would push you until you were sick to your stomach. He would line up these district games. Here we are, Jacksonville, a little 4A school. He would line us up against John Tyler, Class 5A, state champion. Lufkin, Class 5A, state runner-up. I mean, these guys were blowing out schools from Dallas and Houston. He's got little old Jacksonville playing these schools. They're killing us. Those games were over at halftime sometimes. This man is killing us. He must hate us. No. He understood that if he physically conditioned us the way he did and put us up against schools like that, that suddenly playing Corsicana wasn't going to be so scary. (laughs) You guys don't scare us. By the time that he got through doing what he did to that little football team in East Texas, Every year they were a part of the state playoff conversation. But he had to put us through some unpleasantness to condition us for that. You know, I, I went to kids that played on his teams, went on to play in Division One college. Some of them went to the NFL. That's not in the water. That's because people have been transformed. Yeah. All right? Spiritual giants don't just happen. People who do great things for God. They don't just pop out of nowhere. They allow God to transform them. They allow God to work in their lives. They trust that God is good. Israel was being put into captivity, but God said, I'm doing this for your good. I know the end result of this process, and that's where I'm taking you. There's a dark tunnel here, but there's a light at the other end. There's a dark valley here, but there's a pleasant valley on the other side. And that's what the Bible is talking about. In Romans chapter 8, verse 28, when it says that we know that all things work together for good to them who love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. All things work together for the good. You see, because when you read Romans chapter 8, you see all things work together for our good. 
for whom he foreknow them he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That means that he has predestined us to go through this transformational process to be conformed to the image of Christ. Amen. That whom he foreknow, them he predestined, them he predestined, he called, them he called, he justified, and them he justified, he glorified. You see, what God is looking at is that glorified part. But he knows he has to take you through the call, the justify, and then the glorify. He knows he's got to work you through that transformational process. But he's going to do it. He's going to freely give you all things. He's going to bring you all the good of his kingdom. It may be some pain in getting there, but he's going to bring you the good of his kingdom. Because Romans 8.32 says that he that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? That he spared not his own son. You know, I used to look at that verse and say, well, if you let Jesus suffer and die on the cross, he's going to let me suffer and die too, right? But the thing is, the Bible tells us, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The Lord did not spare his own son. He did not withhold his own son. But he gave his own son, delivered him up for us all. Now, if he delivered up his own son for us, for our salvation, for our transformation... What is it that we think that God is going to withhold? Yes, sir. There's nothing for God to withhold. See, if God is willing to give his own son for us, what else is he going to give us? Mm -hmm. Everything. He's good. Mm -hmm. God is good and has good will toward men. We need to recognize that. It's hard to do that sometimes because everything piles up on us and we're stressing out and our houses are burning down. Sometimes figuratively, sometimes literally. Yeah. Our, our world is falling apart. Sometimes figuratively, sometimes literally. Everything has gone to pot. I'm not sure what the pot has to do with any of this. But everything is going downhill at a high rate of speed. It's going down like a snowball and it is gathering up more snow and more momentum as it goes down. If we get to looking at all the problems, we forget who God is, and we forget that he's good. God's testing me. God's testing me. He's putting me through the ringer. Um, God will only give you what he can bear, and evidently he thinks I'm a superhero. We need to understand that God is good. Yes. And he gives us that which is good. Yes. The Bible says in James chapter 1, verse 13, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. God is not tempted with evil. God is not evil. Neither can God tempt with evil. Neither can God bring evil upon people. Neither can God do things for evil purposes, in other words. Mm -hmm. James 1.17 clarifies and says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness. Notice that in whom is no variableness. God is not double-minded. He doesn't change his mind. He's not trying to figure this thing out. He doesn't wake up in a bad mood. With whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. See, we've... We've... 
forgotten. We've forgotten who we serve. We've forgotten who we celebrate. We've forgotten why we celebrate. We've forgotten Christmas. Oh, Brother Leland, we haven't forgotten Christmas. Yeah, we have. As a culture, as a society. I'm not trying to speak and tell you what's going on in your heart. But backing up and looking at society and Christianity as a whole, I think we forgot. I think we forgot. I think we forgot that God is good. I think we forgot that he's present. I think that we have gotten so caught up in worshiping the idolatry of the Christmas holiday that we have forgotten to worship the Savior for whom the holiday represents. Because it has become about the celebration. It has become about the Christmas party. It has become about the gifts and what we can give and what we can get and what we can receive. And did I give a good enough gift to justify what they gave me? And did they give me something that justified what I gave them? This is, this is idolatry. We lose our minds on a cashier that tells us happy holidays. She didn't think about what she was saying. She was giving a polite salutation as you left the store. She might as well have said, have a good day. Take care. See you later. Happy holidays. Ah, you should have said Merry Christmas. You know, we get angry about that. Are we really remembering the reason? You know, we've forgotten. We need to remember. God is good. Yes. God is good. He, he's the source of goodness. He is the goodness. Yes. And our God is good, and our God is a God of redemption. Our God is one who can take someone who doesn't believe in the holiday and doesn't believe in what we celebrate and doesn't believe in the Lord and doesn't believe in faith and doesn't have faith and our God can take that person and work things in their life through his goodness to bring them to the point of faith. Yes. This time of year there's a you'll see productions of a Christmas carol. It'll show up on television. It'll show up in the movie theaters. It'll show up on the stage. I got to watch a production of it here recently. Y'all know what that is about? That is about a man who was in total darkness and hopelessness being reminded of what God really wanted him to understand. Yes. We need to get there. Mm -hmm. We are not going to make an impact in this world. If our first instinct is to win the culture war, we are not going to make an impact in this world if our main concern is the health of our organization. We have to put on the eyes of Christ Amen. and see things the way God sees them. Mm -hmm. And to do that, we first have to see that God is good, that his will toward us is good. That no matter how far we fall and how much we fall short, he is still there with us to pick us up, to redeem us, to dust us off, to move us forward.
And because that, he is worthy of our glory. Yes, he is. Glory to God in the highest. Yes.